This week, NBA star Kevin Love. There was just so much, you know, riding on that. There was a 52-year major sports championship drought. The Cleveland Cavalier reflects on career challenges. Um, Le- LeBron, hardest part of playing alongside him was what? And growing up as the son of a former NBA player and nephew of the Beach Boys, Mike Love. Even more so, just spending time in him with him uh, in Lake Tahoe around uh, the family, around the extended family. Plus, Love opens up about his darkest days grappling with anxiety and depression. It was just scary to uh, get down that route and think about the idea of, of, of you know, taking my own life. The moment he realized he needed help. It's like I could look down and see my chest, like almost having compulsions. And his mission to raise awareness for mental health. I've learned that you know, nothing haunts us like the things we don't say. All that and more right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. All right, so I, I was going to first start by taking you back to when you were a young kid growing up. Um, explain why it was important for your parents to relocate from L.A. to Oregon. I think it was overall just the ease of living when you talk about, you know, where my parents wanted to raise kids. Uh, my dad played at the University of Oregon, always loved Portland, so I think the the move up to the Northwest was, um, you know, pretty easy for them, even though most of our family on both sides is from Southern California. But, you know, if you've ever been to Oregon or know the Portland area well, there's so much nature. The public schools are some of the best in the country. And it's one of the places that I just continue to, you know, pay homage to and, and love going back to and visiting my closest friends, uh, seeing people and just feeling the essence of, of what Portland and what Oregon's all about. You wanted to play football when you were a kid back in the day. Um, what did you say to your parents when you found out you couldn't be quarterback about the position you then wanted to play? Well, it was more so about the, you know, where I'm from, uh, just outside of Portland, Lake Oswego. They, um, I think they do this in a lot of places because it's such an advantage when you have a height and weight, uh, you know, no height and weight limit. So for me, you know, I would have to play, you know, linebacker. I would have to play the line, something uh, of that sort. So I couldn't actually carry the ball or handle the ball. So I would have had to, you know, get somewhat under the weight limit in order to to play quarterback. So they said, uh, you know, and it put it out of the realm of possibility to even be quarterback. But as I said, my dad took me down to the painted area and showed me. He said, "Hey, listen, you know, you idolize Shaquille O'Neal, you idolize Charles Barkley, guys like that. That, you know, position you're going to play as you get older." And he said, this is, your, this is your football down here. So make your mark down here, work from the game from the inside out, and everything else will fall into play. But pretty much basketball is going to be what you're going to do. I think also, I mean, your mom was a, what, a nurse, but you jokingly put on pads at some point, and then it was, your, your mom just told you she wasn't having it? Uh, yeah, it was my senior year of, of high school, actually, and I had a, just a really a really good relationship with, uh, you know, somebody who, who trained the football team. So I put on pads and walked into the locker room, uh, you know, after one of their practices and was like, yeah, I'd, you know, I think about playing. I'd you know, toy with the idea of that. And my parents got wind of it and said, if you ever do that, we're going to drive onto the field and snatch <laughs> you up and that's going to be it. So I was like, okay, understood. Yeah, how many no hitters and perfect games did you throw? A handful of no hitters, and then I had one perfect game. Uh, I was a pretty good pitcher. I grew up watching uh, pretty amazing pitchers throughout the MLB, but my favorite was Randy Johnson. The fact that he was 6'10, he was a lefty, he had the look with the mullet and the mustache, but the Mariners were my team. And if you grew up in the Pacific Northwest with 
know, when they had Griffey, they had Edgar Martinez, Jay Buhner, they ended up having a young Alex Rodriguez. Like, those were the teams. So then why retire from baseball before you ever reach high school? <laughs> uh, you know, I think my, my dad saw the writing on the wall. And basketball was my first love. It wasn't, okay. too, it wasn't too hard of a, of a transition for me, but it was something that was a little tough because I loved the idea of mano y mano pitching. It's all resting on your shoulders. But had I been left-handed, you know, I don't know if I'd be sitting here today. I might be you know, playing for the Dodgers or, or playing for the Rays right now, who knows? But I think basketball was, was you know, uh, it really offered an opportunity for me to go professional and, and, you know, that was my dream was to make it to the NBA. How true is it that you wanted NBA videos instead of toys as uh, a Very kid? true. Very, just like I wanted, I always wanted Shaq basketballs. I was part of the Shaq fan club and like, he'd, <laughs> you know, they'd send back the, the letters and all the stuff and, and the VHS tapes in the mail and like, I actually thought it was coming from him. You know, it's like when I found out it wasn't, it was almost like, you know, learning other things that you do when you grow up. So, but, but then you actually met him, and the first time you met him actually impacted how you treat fans uh, later in life, right? No, it was crazy because it was um, a big moment in my life. We got access to downstairs because my dad had a media pass. But prior to that, my dad ran into Shaq on the elevator and said, Hey, listen, like, my son is a huge fan of yours, maybe your biggest fan. Do you mind saying hi to him if you see him? you know, in the locker room or in the tunnel. So fast forward, we go underneath the tunnel, we're right outside the Orlando locker room, and here comes Shaq. Everybody's grabbing on him, and my dad, 6'9", taps on his shoulder. And, you know, he runs by, and it's my brother and I, we got our jerseys on, and um, my dad said, well, at least, at least you got to see Shaq, and we thought, you know, that was pretty cool. It was like a very small, minor letdown, but then he stops. I think it registered in his brain that, hey, that's the guy that I spoke to earlier today. They must have been coming back from shoot around, turns around and like, you know, I feel like everybody has their shack moment. But for me, how he treated my brother, how he treated myself, how he treated my father, he didn't have to do that. And I thought I felt like that really, you know, leading to today, whether it be on uh, or especially off the floor, especially how I treat kids like that's that was a big moment uh, for me. And I'll never forget Shaq for that even if he gives me a tough time on TNT for shooting threes. <laughs> uh, d describe the comparisons between your dad and Will Ferrell's semi-pro character. Uh, they had the short shorts. My dad had a uh, little bit of the fro going. Uh, I think it was a little bit more dramatized and semi-pro for Will Ferrell, but a lot of the same, the tight jersey, the, you know, the chest hair, <laughs> the almost knee-high, a little bit farther than... Uh, a little bit more than a quarter length sock with the stripes. And he, you know, at the time they were wearing pretty much, I think the essential top of the line shoe was like a Chuck Taylor. So, you know, for him to, to wear that, I can't even imagine really playing, uh, you know, a sport where, you know, your lower extremities, especially your ankles and your feet are, are, you know, mean so much to you to be playing in that. Whereas, you know, now there's such a, you know, off the floor aesthetic type shoe that you stylize. So it's, it's just interesting to me to see where footwear has come from, but in relating it to, to semi-pro and Will Ferrell, it's, it's pretty much spot on. Uh, and you alluded to this a, a bit earlier, but uh, his style of play, he told you what about that? Well, he was, actually it's funny because if he would have played in uh, today's game, uh, being 6'9", being a athletic uh, four or five man and being able to shoot the ball, that was one thing that he could really do. And that's who I got it from. The problem he had was in the summer times, he'd travel with the Beach Boys and yeah. uncle. And right. then he played for the LA Lakers. 
So like finding balance between the two, especially when rock and roll was at its at its peak uh, in that generation, just right after the '60s, that uh, I imagine must have been tough to to find that some uh, to find some semblance of balance there. What was he like as a coach? Hard on me. I mean, he was hard, but he let me. Uh, he knew I was a self-starter. He was good in that he was supportive, but he never let me beat him. He always wanted that competitiveness to come out of me. I can remember, you know, there were coaches that wanted me to tone it down and wanted me to bring it in. And while he, you know, thought the same because I was so emotional, he never wanted that edge to go away. Like there, if you ask my brother, there were a lot of, a lot of broken, uh, a lot of broken video game consoles throughout the years. Cause uh, yeah, if I didn't win, it was ugly. Oh really? It was ugly. Give me an example. Uh, okay, so I'll just go to NBA Jam, especially if he beat me on a last shot. Yeah, that was that was gonna that was gonna cost not only my brother but my family a few dollars in, in getting another system. But for my dad, he wanted my pursuit of the game to be extremely aggressive. So anybody that got away in the way of of you know my goals, uh, he was gonna have a problem with. And you know sometimes to his detriment, sometimes to my detriment. But it was, I mean, more often than not, coming from a good place. But for me, it was more. Uh, you know, just like that's just my pops, he's old school. There's a lot of, uh, you know, you always see the, the overbearing parents or you always see, you know, in, in you know, AAU or you see different coaches or you see uh, different handlers throughout, especially now uh, in 2020 where the, uh, you know, the, the climate of all of that has changed. He just wanted to, to I think, protect me and that was the same thing with, with my mother as well. But he had a clear vision for you and he wasn't gonna let that was anybody it get in the Nobody way. Nobody was gonna of... stand in the way. And I think there was some lessons that were learned. And I always say about my father, like I learned a lot from his success, but also a lot from his failures as well. So those are all all teaching points. It's just like in the NBA, we're, we're taught to, to fail quickly. In a lot of ways, we're, we're told to have success quickly because things are just coming at you so fast. What was that dynamic like as all of a sudden you're getting older and having more success, slowly uh, pulling back from dad's vision and yeah. you know making your own decisions no i think it's just part of the growth process for me it was just uh you know kind of removing myself from you know that bubble if you will and then just you know again learning from both my successes and failures as well and i kept in a lot of you know mental health struggles and really some of my best friends didn't even know i don't even know if 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 they knew um, i remember having that first conversation with my brother and you know, he, he told me he felt like he could see it, but he just always kind of just kept me at a distance and left me alone. So that was something that I ended up growing with too, away from the floor. I had to, mm -hmm. I had to uh, you know, really grow up and learn to, uh, you know, not only be a professional on the floor, but, you know, really be, uh, you know, a, a grown man away from it as well. Really had to make tough decisions. Just the college recruiting process yeah. and the, I, I, I mean, craze that seems to surround that. Uh, give a little insight into like what happens yeah. when you're actually in that process. It's wild. I mean, I think for me, I had some sense of what was going on. But again, I was like, I just want to, I just want to chase the game. I, I just, my, my whole vision was to, was to make it to my goal and make it to the NBA uh, as soon as possible. I wanted that college experience, but overall, and this helped being uh, not only teammates, but roommates with Russell Westbrook, like we, we saw things very linear. We knew what we had to do to get to that level. But that's, that's the problem, like 
the college recruiting process, I feel like, has just continued to get worse. People's parents and their handlers and everybody, you know, wanting something in return. And that just opens up a whole nother, you know, can of worms when it comes to, you know, college players getting paid and, you know, the NCAA using their likeness. So uh, for me, that was, that was very tough because I came into a team that was number one in the country. Um, I was the number one recruit in the country that year. So there was a lot of people tugging at me and we had a great recruiting class. So I know in just in talking to all those guys that, you know, I came up with, there were so many stories and so many things that, that, you know, we had seen. What are, what are some of the most like outrageous ones? Again, here? like you said, bags of cash or, you know, a wardrobe full of clothes, or there's just, there's just so many things that, that, uh, you know, are, are, are scary and, and, and wrong and you don't know how to, you know, really understand it. You've never seen this type of stuff before and yet, uh, you know, you're having to, to deal with it. It just adds so much stress and anxiety and you're just trying to get to your goal. You put the kid in a, in a really tough place. I think it's a learning experience, but you know, you take, you take the player, you take that individual away, there's a lot of greed on every side. I really believe that. You, you know, go to UCLA instead of Oregon, your dad's alma mater, you know, near where you're from. Uh, that first game back at Oregon, uh, when you're with UCLA, before the game ever even starts, yeah. tell me about what happened. Well, that was crazy. I think the week leading up to it, yeah, a number of crazy death threats. They're throwing stuff at, at my family, and it just it kind of got out of hand where... Um, I mean, you, you have a smile now telling me, but, funny. It, 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 funny. It, Listen, but it wasn't we, funny then no, for you, right? No, it was not funny then, and uh, I, I was fine with what was being, I guess, you know, not literally thrown at me. It was quite literally thrown at my, my family, but I was just more worried about them. Like, it, it was more so like, I know that my, my dad can handle it, my mom can handle it, my brother, sister. Uh, Your my, grandma. It was my grandma I was worried about. That was, that was tough because she didn't understand it. She just wanted to be, you know, she wanted to celebrate me and playing back in Oregon. Just wanting me to, to, to be loved was like so, you know, wholesome, and that's just who my grandma was, uh, and always, you know, growing up always was. But she, that was the toughest part for me. But it was, it was, definitely a lot having seen that, and you know. But for me, it was a, it was a great environment, and we ended up winning and got a great road win. So we're in your building in New York, not in your actual uh, place. I understand you've just, you know, completed the kind of renovation of it. What was involved with that process? <laughs> Uh, there was a lot involved with that process. Um, again, it's like with design as well and interior type stuff, just drawing inspiration from, from architecture, cars, um, like I said, different art, different areas of the world, um, you know, different books. It's like in, when I'm walking the streets in New York, depending on, you know, no matter where I'm at, you know, I'm always telling myself, okay, look up, because you just never know what's around the corner. So that's kind of how I looked at, you know, the interior, but almost built it around, uh, you know, the art and the space that I had in regards to that. How long did it take? A while. I think it took about a year and a half to complete exactly what we wanted. You've curated this amazing art collection <laughs> yeah. for your home. Uh, take me through the process of what that entailed. Uh, I mean, I just, like I said, just being relentlessly curious. There's a lot of stuff that I draw inspiration from, I think, you know, art has a commonality to it as well as a major storytelling component. I've always liked 80s contemporary artists. Um, 
George Kondo uh, is, you know, somebody that I love. He has like the, the beautiful and the grotesque. I've, I've loved his work. I got introduced to his work when actually he did My Beautiful Dark and Twisted Fantasy for, for Kanye's album, did the album cover and all the artwork there. Um, love Richard Prince, his cowboy, his cowboys. I actually have one from, uh, you know, the 1980s. And I understand what you have in your place. I mean, it's all, they're all completely different yeah, pieces. Yeah, like, you know, we have Anthony Gormley, uh, John Baltazari, I have a special piece of his as well, RIP, he just passed, a good friend of mine, uh, uh, his dad is Julian Schnabel, um, you know, his plate paintings are amazing, I mean, the list just goes on and on, it's, it's a lot like wine, and uh, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. I'm always really obsessed with, with people's process, or what makes them tick, or you know, their storytelling component. Are there pieces that you don't have that are on the wish list? Of course. List? I mean, there's, there's uh, you know, obviously like the Monets, the Picassos, Basquiat, Jean-Michel Basquiat is somebody that I would always love to have because I love the street art component to it. And he, um, you know, he made it, you know, almost, I don't want to say high class, but he, he really brought that to, uh, you know, the, the, the forefront of, 1980s con contemporary art, which is still very current in today, and you see so many people draw inspiration from his work. The Beach Boys, uh, although I know uh, your musical talents are limited, limited, limited. to a, a short-lived electric guitar yes. uh, career back in the day. Uh, your Uncle Mike is lead singer of the Beach Boys. Uh, how about the best time you ever had around the group? Honestly, the loves uh, you know, our family, we've always done Christmas really big. The Beast Boys have an amazing Christmas album, but even more so just spending time in him, with him uh, in Lake Tahoe around uh, the family, around the extended family. And just there was one time, I think when I was 13 years old, I was in seventh grade where I got to go down there. I think the last time I was down there for Christmas and they did it really, really big and it was a special time. So that away from uh, the Beach Boys, uh, you know, performing, that would be the best time. And then actually seeing them perform was their 50th anniversary at the Hollywood Bowl. It's just special because they're from there, you know, right, right down the street in, in, in Hawthorne and, and grew up in Southern California and Los Angeles and then became, you know, one of the best, you know, American, if not one of the best bands of all times and, you know, have one of the top I guess five even albums and records of all time in, in Pet Sounds. After your dad retired from the NBA in 1975, he was hired to move in with the Beach Boys, yep. Brian Wilson. Yep. Uh, what has he told you about what his responsibilities entailed? Uh, you know, Brian had uh, gone through his own series of, of um, you know, maybe you know, likely wasn't all his fault, but addiction and, uh, you know, there were times where he spent a number of uh, months, if not, uh, an extended time in bed, and I think my dad just more than anything wanted to protect Brian. Um, you know, a true musical genius. Not only did he want to protect that, but he wanted to protect Brian as the person because, I mean, that's, that's what you do when you're family. But he had, you know, others um, on the outside that weren't looking out for his best interests. Really? My dad really tried to intervene. Um, so what's he said about that? Uh, that day was just a really dark period because, uh, you know, like I said, Brian was such a, 
unbelievable artist and a person that my dad wanted to look out for. Like, he'd take him out to play basketball. My dad, like I mentioned, was a great photographer. He used to have pictures of all of them playing basketball, going to the YMCA, getting Brian out sweating, trying to get him to lose weight, trying to get uh, really healthy, and just get him out, I think, into the open because, you know, when you you know, lock yourself in a room or you're living in the shadows, that can really affect your, not only your physical, because, you know, you could see him, you know, with the weight gain and, you know, kind of ballooning up and not looking healthy, but also just from the mental aspect of things, I think Brian really dealt with a lot. Whether it was what your dad told you about the Beach Boys or the fun your dad would have in the off season, what was it about what he told you on those fronts that kind of resonated with you when it came to your career and what to do and not to do? There's so much to be learned in failure and in regret and in that um, component in life, not just with, with my father, but with with Brian, who was, I mean, regarded truly in, in rock and roll and in music and in that whole, f you know, era as a true genius. You know, without Brian, without, you know, my uncle, without, you know, the Wilsons, they're, they're you know, like likely wouldn't be, you know, a Sgt. Pepper's in, in that album from the Beatles. So I learned, you know, a lot just being being around success from my family, being, you know, seeing some struggles with my family. There's just so much to, to be learned. I think I've, I've, I've taken that and tried to adapt that into my career. But early on, it had to, it wasn't something that was just given to me. I had to learn it my, myself as well. Uh, life highlight for you had to be, not only winning the championship, but then I understand what sticks out more to many of your teammates was that parade. Uh, what was it about that? Um, I think the parade, it was just, you know, the, the, you know, not only were we so hungry and, and the fact that we came back in the, uh, the manner that we did from three, a 3-1 three deficit and everybody had counted us out. We did, we did it for the city and for the, you know, city of Cleveland, state of Ohio, it was, there was just so much, you know, riding on that. There was a 52-year major sports championship drought. You could tell they hadn't had a uh, parade quite like that in so long. There was just people we were able to reach out and touch from our respective cars or our respective floats, and that was definitely a, a, a highlight and something that I had never quite experienced or seen before. Uh, and it was supposed to last, what, like 45 minutes 45 minutes, hour? it was three and a half hours, yeah. <laughs> Um, Le LeBron, um, what do you think makes him successful? I think what makes LeBron successful is his brain. In some, some ways he's chasing ghosts, in some ways he's creating barriers that he wants to not only break through but explode through. So his, his always says strive for greatness. I mean, I've seen it firsthand, uh, you know, in, in the way he takes care of his body, um, you know, what he does when he's in practice, the tone he sets, uh, always trying to get better. I mean, he never stops. I mean, you saw it this year where it could have been easy to, to lay down and you're in the bubble and there's no fans and he was able to dig deep and somehow get the best out of himself and his teammates. So that's just a true, not only testament to his, his greatness on the floor, but a testament to his character. And I'll always, always, always have his back. Hardest part of playing alongside him was what? You know, people laugh at me when I say it, but he, uh, you know, he just takes everybody, he's almost like a planet. He just takes everybody into his orbit. And he, uh, you know, he obviously expects a lot from you. I think the greatest players in the world do, uh, or the greatest players ever do. And that was something he, he, he knew that I was going to have to sacrifice. I didn't know how, what that meant when I got to Cleveland, but it was the best thing 
the best move that you know I ever made was to be a part of something special and a winning team like that and to be a part of uh, that team with LeBron as well. How did that sacrifice compare to what you would have expected going into it? Uh, just that, you know, I had gone from being a, a number one option, a guy that touched the ball and played the, the game from uh, the inside out, touched the ball, you know, quite often, almost 20 shots a game, to uh, then being really a, a floor spacer, a defensive rebounder, and somebody who, you know, played the game from the inside out his entire life to then, you know, letting, uh, you know, the best player in the world and a, a magician in Kyrie Irving with the basketball uh, you know, basically space the floor and let them play downhill where you have a freight train. And then, like I said, you have that guy who's just so good with the basketball. So and what, what, what's that process like for you of growing into being accepting of that? Yeah, it was tough. Um, it was tough to accept, but, um, you know, for the greater good, I think that taught me so much. And in my evolution as not only a player, but a person, I think it was, it was huge for me. Like you have to, you have that common goal and, you know, what are you going to sacrifice and what are you going to give up to, to get there? And while, uh, you know, I wasn't putting up those, those same numbers, you know, we were able to get the best out of each other and that was, you know, what counted in the end. And we have, we have the proof to, to show for it. We got a Larry O'Brien trophy and a ring. Ballroom uh, Trump Soho Hotel. Uh, tell about the conversation your coach has with you and LeBron that, that I think really impacted you at the time. Yeah, we just uh, we had just changed coaches a, a few games prior, and Ty Lue was was the head coach. And basically, it was it wasn't even uh, Bron. Actually, it was it was James Jones, who's uh, you know one of my closest friends. I consider him actual blood. And he they just said just you just got to be yourself. I think I was so you know worried about pleasing everybody and uh, you know trying to trying to you know do things for you know everybody else and I'm, I'm, I'm very selfless in that way but sometimes I don't look out for myself so they were just like be yourself and that while it seems so easy it was it was tough for me to do because I just you know I pass up open shots I was overly critical of myself I wasn't allowing myself to play my game and you know once I got past that and broke through that the rest is history yeah great. but I mean I think at one point he calls you out on social right like or, or early oh, that on. Was or, way before that yeah I, I, I mean, was way before that. like how, like in, in those such like that's uh, so welcome for me, to Cleveland. The, yeah, <laughs> no, the only thing for me was I, I, all I wanted was recognition that, hey, listen, guys, like I'm sacrificing a lot here. Like I'm, I'm you know, I gave up likely the most on the team to be here and try to win. All I want is, is just the recognition for that and we can move on. Yeah. So I think that's, that's what it came from. But we, that was the one thing about, you know, the whole social media aspect and uh, uh, the media trying to turn us against each other like that. That sells, that gets a lot of eyes, that gets a lot of clicks, but you know, after a certain very, very brief time, we didn't really even pay attention to that because we knew what our common goal was, and you know, we, we had a team that was, was all in it together. How, how did you realize he was going to leave? I mean, I had, listen, I, I think we, we all had a, uh, you know, a pretty good idea after we got swept in the finals um, in 2018, but um, no, I think it was you know, just the next step in his evolution, I think all of Cleveland was very thankful that he he kept his promise, came back, won a championship, and it was a you know just a special ride. And you know it was it was the next thing for him. The most personally challenging part on your end of the past couple seasons would be what? I would say just going from that level, you know, being a team that was 
you know, expected to make the finals, if not win a NBA championship as well, um, to a team that was, you know, rebuilding and potentially, you know, didn't and wouldn't make the playoffs. So I think that was probably the toughest part for me uh, at this stage in my career to, to have to deal with. Why do you think you have not been traded? You know, it's been nonstop. The, the since you got there, yeah, yeah since right. I got there, it's like it's it's funny because I don't know. Like I, you know, it's uh, I think it's going to be even more harder now and more complex if the team was looking to move me uh, because we just don't know how the numbers are going to shake out after you know this year and the salary cap and uh, the CBA. But what do you think the argument is for and against it? I think my number's high. I think I'm mean, the oldest player on the team. I think the team wants to go young. I think that's a good reason for it. Uh, and then, you know, I also think I can add a ton of value as a shooting big, a guy that's, uh, you know, can play inside out, can really rebound the basketball, um, you know, just is, you know, still a really great player, has a number of great years left. That's a hard question for me to answer without, you know, swaying one way or the other. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you have strong interest in player coach type role eventually. Yeah. I, <laughs> I think early on in my career I did. Um, and I have that response because it's, it's tough. It's, it's a league, especially head coaches now, uh, maybe in our league more than any other league, it's what have you done for me lately? And I think there's a tough dynamic, uh, you know, with the team and, and, and ownership and, and uh, with the general managers, like you guys all have to be on the same page. So you really have to make sure that your culture is right and you guys can, can all, um, you know, you're gonna have some side steps, you're gonna have some steps back, but make sure that you're making, uh, you know, the right adjustments to, to be able to win. Cause at the end of the day, you know, you wanna put yourself in the best position. So um, I could, see myself in, in, in sub, some sort of, you know, supplementary role. But as far as being a head coach, I just don't see it in the cards for me. When you're with Minnesota, uh, set the scene and take me through what happens on the contract front when I think you're in the player training room mm -hmm. and all of a sudden the GM comes in and throws <laughs> something at you. A lot of what went on there for a few years was not normal and still haven't seen till today and probably never will again. But um, yeah, I was handed the contract and I was told to look it over right then and there. And I just showered like I'm in my towel uh, and I'm about to get dressed. And I just said, like, I knew this wasn't right. So I just kind of, you know, threw it off to the side. People said I threw it in the trash, right next to the trash. And I was just, I was like, speak this over with my agent. I want to be here long term. I want, you know, and I feel like I've, I've, I've proved myself and, you know, worked my butt off and, you know, know what I deserve. But um, I guess, you know, they felt different. You said, uh, um, I, I have a very good memory and I always remember the people who've done right by me and the people who've done wrong by me. Elaborate on that. I was young. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm such a different person now. It's, 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 it's funny to, to hear some of the things I said, or I just had, uh, you know, people that, you know, really had my back and I felt I was, I was, you know, somebody that was willing to be, um, in a, in a tough situation and, and help a team grow and help an organization grow. Uh, and they felt another way. And I think that's, 
you know, pretty much ultimately what led to us parting ways. Uh, I want to ask you about some travels before we get into the other stuff, but uh, how have you found getting away over the summer benefits you? Um, I think just, I think, you know, getting out of, I mentioned getting out of your comfort zone, but also, you know, chasing these experiences and, and meeting new people from different walks of life and understanding their corner of the world is, you know, just part of, uh, if you can do it, you should. And it's a part of, you know, my evolution and, um, you know, everybody that I bring along with me, their evolution. And I want those shared experiences to be something we can look back at and say, hey, we learned this, wasn't that great. Um, take a lot of photos, drink a lot of wine, travel to as many places as we possibly can. And if we come back to here in America and we don't hate each other, it was a great trip. So where's on the short list of places you and Kate want to go coming up? Um, definitely Kenya or anywhere so far in Africa that's going to be, uh, you know, really great. There's so much wildlife that we appreciate and that we love. Um, we're told that people there are, you know, really warm and will take care of you. Um, I think Australia, we have friends down there that we haven't been able to, to travel to and, and to see. Um, and that was another one we were going to look to this year. And then there's some places um, domestically uh, as well that we really love, uh, you know, Blackberry Farm, Blackberry Mountain um, in Tennessee is another great spot. We've loved traveling to the American Southwest. Um, there's so many places. It's hard to make a short list, but those are a few places that we love to go. All right. Some of your favorites, not domestically. Some of my favorites, so we talk about south of France uh, earlier. I've been able to spend some good time there. I mean, everywhere in Italy, obviously love their wines. Um, obviously, I, have a, I mean, I have a great... Um, oh, Japan. Japan. I, I want to make sure I, I say that. If not for the Olympics, I want to go there anyways. Uh, because I've been to China many times, I've been to the Far East many times, but never actually spent time uh, in Japan or in Tokyo. Um, I mean, I want to see everywhere. It's like I want to, you know, before I you know, kick the bucket, I want to make sure that I've I've seen as much as I possibly can. And um, you know, it's like parts unknown with Anthony Bourdain. It's like we've watched every episode. It's like every single place that he he went, he got so much out of it, and and just got the entire social climate climate in general, food, people. I mean, you just got to see everything. I mean, I thought that was amazing. Yeah, uh, tell about the Africa trip that got canceled. Yeah, I mean, we were supposed to, uh, we were supposed to go to Kenya. We've, we've had a lot of friends that have been able to uh, experience that. Um, in Kenya and South Africa, like everywhere, I have friends from uh, Yaoundé, Cameroon, um, Talked about Dikembe Mutombo earlier. Uh, we've had chances to go basketball without borders. And for one reason or another, and this reason being uh, COVID this year, we just haven't been able to. So that's number one on our list is to, is to go there, is to go to Africa and you know, to go to one of those very special places and see everything. Mental health. Um, in what ways did that Players' Tribune article, the first one, help you? I think more than anything, it just... Uh, it made me understand that there's such a community out there that is also struggling. And while that's disheartening, it allowed me to, I just immediately felt more comfortable in my own skin. I didn't get into too much detail. It was still, I was still able to pull back a layer that I hadn't before and be vulnerable. That was probably the scariest part, but also the part that, 
you know, took me out of the shadows. You know, within the first three days, we had 6,000 emails. Within the first week, we had over 10. And it's really what it's turned out to be is something so much bigger than me, but something that I can continue to, to speak about, you know, hopefully be a face for and, and you know, move the needle forward. And especially in such an anxiety-ridden time and uh, so much unknown. So part of, uh, you know, a lot of my therapy for me is, is really, uh, you know, writing things down, uh, whether it be about mental health or, or otherwise, because I think the range and all of that can help be a, a major problem solver. And, and you touched on some of that in your second article, which yeah. I, I don't know if this was just coincidental or intentional, but uh, came out the week after my interview with Dak Prescott that um, it made Coincidental, news. yeah. All throughout this, this quarantine and this offseason, I started experiencing emotions I've never felt before. Um, anxiety for the main one. And then, honestly, a couple of days before my brother passed, I would say I started experiencing depression. What was it uh, about um, what Dak said in the interview that resonated with you because you came out and supported that on social? Big time. I mean, he's, he's uh, stronger than ever for having done that. For, for him to do that, especially being in the position he's in, the primary faces of the league, but being America's team, being the quarterback for that, and having said that, there's so many people that that look up to him and look at him like a superhero. So for him to, you know, allow himself to, to grieve and to be vulnerable, that was incredibly powerful, not only for uh, myself uh, to see and to hear that and for what we're trying to do, but just for, for you know, so many people from, from every walk of life, from every demographic, that kind of stuff is huge. And he just paid it forward. And, and I really meant what I said when, he, when, when I said he saved a lot of lives that day. The Kevin Love Fund. How did the idea come about in the first place? Knowing that there was a special chance to impact and, and help people on a, on a, I mean, really a universal scale. Uh, uh, scale. It, it really was incredible to see how many people even came out in that first week, as I mentioned, with the 10,000 emails and uh, everything that led up to uh, really that uh, third week in September when we announced the fund. We just felt like it was there was a a real chance to, um, you know, take this and make it something special where we could continue to pay it forward and, and really help, really help people. Your proudest achievement so far with it would be what? It's tough. I mean, there's, even in our first two years, there's been a lot of things that I'm uh, incredibly proud of. Um, uh, we've started an education pilot that we're, that we're getting into schools where um, you know, they're able to share first-person stories. And we're going to find ways to, uh, you know, make that very therapeutic uh, for kids. Also, destigmatizing uh, anything mental health related, uh, making sure that we continue to talk about it so we can not only uh, beat down the stigma, but we can intervene early and then research. Like, that's what another something that I'm uh, so proud of is, uh, you know, the Kevin Love Centennial Chair at, at uh, UCLA uh, in their psych department. We've been able to, to work with them, obviously my alma mater, but they have great resources and just able to help so many people. So this thing will continue to grow as well as our relationships with, uh, you know, uh, Entertainment Industry Foundation, JK Living, Bring Change to Mind, uh, people like Headspace. There's so many different uh, people uh, into, in the mental health and wellness space that, that we're working with, but we're also trying to affect the physical side as well. So just 
keeps going on and on. It's really great to see where this is going to head. And I, I know a, a broader goal is touching a billion people over the next five years, but did, I'm hoping you can elaborate on a handful of items that I'm going to mention just in terms of goals. The first being uh, increasing uh, grant making. Yeah, I mean, I think the the increase in grant making is is, I mean, that's part of the relationship aspect of it, making sure that um, you know, we have the resources in order to, to you know, impact, uh, you know, other people and, um, you know, in, in their endeavors and, and, and what they see in their vision. And that's a major component to it as well. It's not just us and the Kevin Love Fund. It's, it's, it's others as well. We're all in this together. Like, if, if it weren't for our relationships that we established early on, we wouldn't have made the, the leaps and bounds that, and, and be where we're at today. Uh, influence policy? Influence policy, that's a big one. Um, there's so much, you know, part of my story actually, um, and I've spoken about it, is Youth Uprise in Parkland, Florida. Like that was part of the reason I decided to write my first article and seeing the Youth Uprise that came from that after the fact. And then in, in, in Oregon, uh, you know, there was a, a group of kids that went to the state legislature and spoke about, you know, we need these these mental health days. You know, every quarter, every semester. Which some people could think is just a convenient excuse for a day off, but it's a, yeah, it's actually and a real I've thing, though. Yeah. Where I'm not actually sick, but in my mind, I need a mental health day. Like I I understood that completely. Like people want to look at it and say, well, people are just going to uh, abuse that. But you know, for them to take a day or two or three and and cap it out, I think it's it's you know only going to you know, for allow for, for more growth and allow them, you know, probably to get the best out of themselves moving forward. In this digital education platform. The digital, the digital aspect, I mean, that's where it has to go, right? I mean, it's, it's, we're continuing to find different ways to, uh, you know, affect people from a, a, a viral or, or, or digital component. And that's, you know, where the world's headed. And you imagine, you know, finding new ways and more evolved ways uh, in the tool pillar of the Kevin Love Fund. Uh, I think there's gonna be a lot of resources and, you know, in the grant making and in the money that we're going to, uh, you know, get in the fund, we're gonna be able to do a lot of great things when it comes to the digital side. How satisfying is it to have found something that truly has the ability to become your legacy? I mean, it's hard, it's, for me, it's hard to really um, conceptualize it right now. I just feel like I'm, I'm, I'm in it. You know, the legacy component of it isn't something I'm, I'm truly, you know, thinking about every day. I'm just trying to make, you know, as big an impact as I possibly can and make a footprint in this area because I, I think more than any other time in human history we're dealing with, uh, you know, it's truly a pandemic that, you know, people are starting to talk about, but before this, nobody was really talking about. So it's, it's going to be incredibly paramount and important, this work that we're doing at the fund, but also, um, you know, a number of people have come and done it before us. People will do it after us, but we want to make a, a major, major mark. You, you wrote, what people on the outside don't always understand is that it takes all of your strength and willpower just to exist. Explain that. Suppression is, it's exhausting. Uh, I just wanted to lock myself in a dark room and, and never come out. Um, and there were times where I'd only come out to, to either eat, to uh, you know, play basketball, to go to work, and that was just kind of my, my outlet, my safe space. So when that's taken away from me, it's even more exhausting. But I think it just, it's an accumulation. It just adds up when you have 
expectations when you're playing in front of, you know, 25,000 fans plus all the people watching on TV that aren't knowing that you're dealing with this stuff on top of, you know, what you're dealing with away from the court as well. It just is completely and utterly exhausting when you have a chemical imbalance and you haven't been able to get it right. You wrote, uh, some of the darkest moments of my life happened when the crutch of basketball got taken away. Yeah. And that season where you only played uh, 18 games mm. uh, for for the Timberwolves, uh, you know, you pretty much, as I understand it, locked yourself in your apartment, rarely came out of your bedroom. Uh, why? It's just, yeah, I mean, that crutch of basketball was everything to me. That was my, my safe space. Listen, I love basketball. It's, it's what I do. It's not who I am. And that was something that I had to, you know, really face and learn. And when I had an injury, it was really tough for me to, uh, you know, comprehend or understand what I was going to even do with myself. So I didn't have another escape. And on top of that, I'm not around my teammates. I'm living alone. I'm in a city where... Um, you know, they a lot like Cleveland, where they live vicariously through their sports and love their sports teams. And my, I, you know, social anxiety was at such a high level that I only had very, very small pockets um, that I felt like I could go out. And you know, I wanted people, uh, you know, I wanted to feel comfortable around people, but I couldn't just force that. I couldn't do that. Um, you know, living uh, the way that I was, so that my social anxiety got to such a high point where I didn't want to go outside. And that was a, uh, yeah, it was just a really, really dark moment, uh, point, excuse me, in my life that is, you know, tough to revisit. But again, it was, it was nice to, to put it on paper and allow for people to read that. So if there was one person or anybody that had some of that in common uh, and had gone through an unhealthy phase like that or is struggling right now could, could get something from it and, you know, hopefully help them. What, what did an average day entail for you then? Uh, depending if I was going to the gym. So, you know, if I was hurt at the time uh, and it was my shooting hand, I never knew if it was going to be the same again. So that scared me in itself. Like my livelihood, my, this game of basketball, which is an escape for me, is taken away. For me, it was, you know, waking up in the morning, uh, probably eating an unhealthy breakfast. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know, going back to my room. Uh, yeah, it was... Pretty much just drawing the blinds, being dark in there, sleeping. Um, yeah, I mean, coming out of my room to eat, uh, maybe a shower. <laughs> uh, it was just, yeah, I mean, it was just redundant. It was just day after day. It was, you know, kind of like that if the team was on a road trip. Um, you know, even if I was going to see, you know, my, my, uh, you know, hand specialist or, or my uh, surgeon in New York would pretty much, you know, be the same. I'd be, uh, you know, right up the street here at the hospital for special surgery and just be locked away in a hotel room. And, um, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't a great existence. I, I mean, day after day, meaning how long did this go on for? Uh, that, I mean, that was probably one of my worst episodes while I was still, you know, in contact. And um, that was the one thing I'm, I'm thankful for. Uh, modern technology in our phones was I was able to just text some of my you know best friends and and, and the few people in my life uh, that were like lifeblood for me um, but this went on for months months because I played 18 18 games and had no uh, real um, healthy way of not only expressing myself but just to bring myself out of it you know because again you self-medicate you you, or, you know, you drink, you 
you know, treat your body terribly, you eat terribly, and um, you just pretty much do everything to, um, to harm or hurt yourself. You're in your bedroom, blinds drawn a lot of the time, you know, no TV as you wrote. Like, what, do you, what, what are you thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously, uh, you know, when you get to, to that point and it's day after day being the same, you come to a point where, you know, the darkest moments come into play and, and you know, suicidal thoughts come into play. And that, that the, you know, you start, you know, planning it out and, you know, what would be the, the, the route you would take. And that is, uh, yeah, those are um, really scary moments in my life. What were you going to do? Uh, I mean, I had a number of ways. I mean, it's, you know, the good thing that happens is when you do search that, it, it comes up with the National Suicide Prevention Line. There was a couple ways that I toyed with, but it was just scary to uh, get down that route and think about the idea of, of, of you know, taking my own life. But it was, um, you know, something that crossed my mind pretty, pretty often, especially when you're in a, mo a moment like that. Did you ever uh, attempt to? No. Thankfully, when you were in those really low places, you said um, there were a couple of your friends that helped in getting you through it. What happened that got you out of it? Um, I think, honestly, part of it was because of my relationship with with basketball. Part of that saved me just getting healthy. But, um, you know, I think it was just knowing that I've been so fortunate and so amazingly blessed to have a group of friends that like truly want nothing else other than to just, uh, you know, be there for me and to have this relationship, like my, my two closest friends from back home that had really no idea. Oh, they didn't? <laughs> no, I mean, I have, I have a, uh, you know, a friend of mine who's, uh, who's a trainer and, uh, who was kind of like my protector in, in, in high school, uh, he, uh, he, he had an understanding, um, not to that extent, but he had dealt with his own. Uh, he was, we were probably like each other's first therapist growing up, but uh, always looked out for each other. And he had some idea and some ideas of what was going on. That's why a lot of these articles and what I speak about hits close to home for him. But other than that, um, you know, maybe just, you know, a couple, couple people at the time that uh, I could bounce stuff off of and that I was texting and, um, you know, was th that were uh, there with me at the time. But none of them knew how low you had gotten? Uh, I mean, there was probably one person in particular. I had a, you know, a girlfriend at the time that, that, that knew, but that was it. Does it ever get to a point anymore where you still have su suicidal thoughts or... I think, listen, no if more. you've been down that road and I don't, you know, I don't know how, you know, if whoever's going to watch this who's, who's had those thoughts before, I think it does cross your mind. It just, it's, it's something that uh, you just, I mentioned changing the relationship with it. It's like, you know, when you meditate, those, those thoughts even sometimes creep in, but, you know, you address them, um, you try and understand why they're there, and then you just kind of, you know, put them off, uh, and, or address them head on, and then, you know, you kind of put them at bay. And, and So, like, when you've had those thoughts in, like, present times, mm -hmm. what are the tools that you've been given that help you in getting through it? Um, 
honestly, it's it's kind of I mentioned putting all the things into one basket. It's almost uh, like an accumulation of things. It's just I wake up in the morning and kind of assess and understand what I need uh, in that moment and understanding you know where I'm at, what's the setting, how my body's feeling, you know why this, why I really think this is coming up. I always have. Uh, you know, my resources uh, or have somebody to talk to, uh, you know, like my therapist back in Cleveland that I can reach out to. Um, and I've just learned to speak my truth, honestly. I've learned that, you know, nothing haunts us like the things we don't say. So me keeping that in is actually more harmful. So I think that's been the biggest and most helpful thing for me is exposing it, understanding that, um, you know, it, it is gonna make me vulnerable and maybe put me in a, a, a spot where, uh, you know, for most people it could be tough, but I know that there's a whole, you know, group and a strength in numbers out there of people that are dealing with it. And, you know, if we have more people that pay it forward, uh, you know, like we've seen across um, a number of sports and a number of walks of life, that's going to be better. And you said even now with all the work you've done the, the past couple of years, some days are still brutal yeah, for you. Super brutal, yeah. Just because you don't get to choose when, you know, you don't get to turn it on or turn it off. But it's more so, you know, I, I tend to feel other people's pain and then not take care of myself. Uh, I think it's been, you know, the isolation of COVID. Um, you know, I think it's been, um, you know, obviously everything that's going on in America, social injustice, I mentioned anxiety rates tripling uh, from the second quarter of 2019 to 2020, as well as depression rates quadrupling, like that kind of stuff. When it's, uh, the future seems meek and it seems like it's, it's uh, you know, things aren't gonna end the way that you want them to, I think that can put you down a very slippery slope. And it's, it's you know, when you have depression, uh, and what's sorry to interrupt, but like, what's the slippery slope for you? So all of a sudden, is, you're you know watching negative news on yeah, TV, you're so, and, totally and it goes that. from there to what? When it it's overgeneralization. So I mentioned that accumulation. It's just completely falling apart. Even in a lot of moments, disproportionate to the circumstances. Like you can just be set off by, uh, you know, something that even in its intent, wasn't meant to be harmful, but can really be for your brain. And I have, that's been me my entire life. And I continue to, to work on that. But some days I just, I just don't have the will. I just don't have it in me to, to do that. And you'll go from where to where? I mean, it's just like, you know, you go zero to a hundred, you go from a hundred to damn near zero. I mean, it's, it's, you know, very similar in that way, but you just, uh, and, and what are you like when it's the, the, the when it's the worst? Yeah, incredibly stoic. Uh, you know, I won't talk. I'll leave. You know, emails, messages, all sorts of things unread. Don't respond to it because um, that'll just put me into a more more of a bad place. And I think for me, it's it's you know, it's it's scary the thoughts that that go through your brain that are not healthy at all. But now I have a different outlets and different things I can do to to you know, kind of set that aside or just, you know, kind of put it over there and work on it. But um, yeah, there's still, you know, a lot of days and I, I can empathize. It just doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care who you are. Doesn't care, you know, doesn't matter where you're from, what resources you have. It's if, you know, you don't continue to work on this, you're gonna to continue to have bad days, but. Um, and, and you said there are like little things that yeah. can set you off and almost destroy your day. Like, <laughs> right. you, you, I think you're like, it's you coffee. can have a bad yeah. cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah. But, like, know, what, like, what do you mean? It's just, uh, you know, when you get so, like, 
and again, my I think my on both sides, and you know, I take medication, heavy medication for both. But you know, if my depression's bad and I can't get out of that, and it seems like there's no light at the end of the tunnel, then I get worked up and my anxiety takes a, a major hit, and vice versa. So, you know, that's that's when that I mentioned that overgeneralization happens where, you know, I mentioned the cup of coffee because I have a cup of coffee every morning. Like if I don't set my day right, I mentioned those micro goal, we mentioned those micro goals mm-hmm. earlier, but if my you know, cup of coffee, cup of coffee, excuse me, is, is bad. I'm like, all right, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm just terrible. I'm a horrible person. Like the rest of the day is going to be off. I'm just going to go and lock my door and sit in a dark room. Like that's, as some I've done many a times and it's just extremely unhealthy because then you start thinking like, you know, about your existence and, you know, am I meant to be here? And it's just, you know, those type of thoughts creep in. And I mentioned in the article too, it's like when you're in such a dark place like that, you're almost thinking to yourself, what's the point? It's funny, actually through COVID, I've, I've tried to connect a lot of dots looking back. And while, you know, I've, I've, obviously have days that I, I really do struggle and days that, you know, I, I you know, need to make sure that I do everything I can to, to, you know, push certain feelings away or not go down a hole and make sure I, I take my medication. But I, I've thought about uh, a lot of regret and I suffer a lot from imposter theory as well. Like I, I sometimes don't feel uh, deserving. I don't feel like I'm, I'm worthy of, you know, what I've accomplished or the success I've had. And a lot of times I feel like a fraud because I don't feel like I've achieved enough. And, you know, that was one of the things that, uh, one of the things I wrote back in, in, in September, uh, when I was writing my article for the Players Tribune about my, uh, depression that I dealt with is that I tried to achieve my way out of it and out of depression. And I think it was a gift and a curse in that I was able to, uh, you know, really achieve a lot, but at the same time, I never felt like I did enough, and I always just put that that carrot right outside of what I consider success. I look back, and there are times that that I do uh, wish I could change, but I think in moving forward, you know, why that is painful, and you know, those those you know scars are are there. They don't always fully heal. I think it's it's you know something that adds to the to the evolution, and in a lot of ways makes you better listener, makes you hear people out more, and just makes you more empathetic. How did the HBO doc on Robbins Williams after his death really resonate with you? Oh, he's, I mean, he's, if, if you grew up with his movies and, uh, you know, his stand-up and his personality, you would have thought, you know, that's not a face of depression. That's not a face of, of, of mental illness. When you don't face those certain fears or those anxieties or that depression head on, uh, that just puts you even farther back and then you self-medicate. And when that doesn't work, it sets a baseline and puts you back even more and then you self-medicate. Uh, you know, it's, that's the slippery slope, right? So um, I think that was, that was something that I learned from him was like, uh, you know, that achievement aspect of it like it's not just going to happen if you just keep taking yourself to higher higher heights in your profession you have to you know work on yourself and you know work on these other things and also have you know a a form of escape in your life that's going to be healthy and beneficial for you away from the court Uh, november 2017 your panic attack it's third quarter timeouts called take me to that moment and what happened from there yeah, I mean, uh, it was scary. I was, 
you know, just trying to catch my breath in a in a huddle. Um, you know, I kind of I'd gotten up and you know, Ty Lu asked me if I was okay, and I just could not catch my breath and my my heart just continued to to race and to race. And you know, it's like I could look down and see my chest like almost having convulsions and. Uh, no, I had to, because I'm in front of these almost 24,000 people, I'm like, I'm not about to have this moment here. And every time I'd, I'd felt something like that in the past, I always had somewhere to go or it manifested in anger or rage in such a big way. But I just went to the locker room. I'm like, all right, where do I need to go? I'm searching for something that's not there. I can't catch my breath. My mind is racing. So I ended up on the, uh, the floor of my head athletic trainers, Steve Spiro, his, uh, uh, his office, um, feel like something stuck in my throat, and I thought I was, I thought I was, you know, really having, you know, a cardiac episode and having a heart attack. And from from people that I've, I've, uh, you know, talked to and spoken with about it, um, they share a lot of similarities in, in, you know, how they experience. And on top of that, I'm just leaking sweat. Um, so that was a really scary moment where I ended up with oxygen. Um, went to the Cleveland Clinic afterwards, and everything checked out. They ran all the tests, and you know, I. I thought to myself, like, what the hell just happened then? Like, what, what is, what's going on? I think that was the first time where I said, okay, I, I, I put off getting help for, for so long. I've told very few people, you know, what's been going on with me all these years. So, okay, now it's time to really consider the dude in the mirror and, and get some help. When you were actually in that, were you concerned for your life? Yes. It's funny. It's, it's, I shouldn't say funny, but it's, it's, at that moment, like, I still get anxiety and pit in my stomach thinking about it now, but it was just scary. I mean, I think the fact that it was such a public setting and I didn't want anybody to see, that's what really made it, like, something where it was almost like, I feel like I'm going to die, and maybe if everybody's going to find out, maybe it's not the worst thing. So it was like a slippery, slippery slope uh, for me. Why were you so concerned about other people finding out? Because... You know, these are just things that you don't share, especially, you know, in talk, terms of uh, gender lines, too. Like, as a man, these are things like I was, I was taught or, or grew up, even outside of my family, you just did not expose. Like, you, you, don't, you don't share this stuff. Um, so, you know, for these guys that are supposed to trust me day in and day out, if they know that I'm dealing with stuff in my, my brain and, and my mind every way, they're not gonna be able to trust me and it's gonna affect my livelihood. And on a national scale, so worried that people would look at me different and, and think that uh, you know, I was weak or that um, you know, I was somebody that, that either couldn't be trusted or you know, it would make me not fit in or you know, just there were so many things that were going through my brain at the time that uh, I think even made it even worse. When was the last time you had a really bad episode? The anxiety component is just something that I live with every day. Um, it's something that I've tried to <clears throat> change my relationship with. And I think, you know, there's different philosophies and people that, that uh, look at medication a different way. But I think medication has helped save my life in a big way, uh, not only from the uh, anxiety component, but depression component as well. I think uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, has really helped me. And my therapist has, has really helped me to where now it's almost like, uh, you know, growth sessions. Why have you said one of the best days of your life happened after you started going through therapy? Because I'm just, now I get to be unapologetically myself. Like I, I'm just, I just am who I am. Um, and I have these real flaws and these, you know, things about myself that I'm not necessarily proud of, but I deal with on a daily basis. And, 
you know, and playing all my cards, that was the scariest thing that I likely did in my life. I think that's just allowed me to be so comfortable in my own skin and I got to be myself truly for the first time uh, probably in my entire life. And you get to change the narrative in, in your brain about you know, things that you've, you've suffered from and thought about and suffered about for, for so long. And I think that can be extremely rewarding and extremely profound as, as you move forward. And I, th I really do feel that if you find the right person, to it doesn't even have to be a, a licensed professional. It can be, you know, anybody within your walk of life or, uh, you know, a, a step removed. If you just, if you're able to, to even just change your way of thinking that much and, you know, find ways that uh, a growth pattern uh, from it, I mentioned those being growth sessions for me, I think it can be incredibly powerful for your life moving forward and that's something that I've just, uh, try to continue to do and then pay it forward to that next person. You mentioned the fun. I think that um, helping other people, I never thought I'd be <laughs> sitting here talking about this if you would have told me this five, ten years ago, but it's, it's you know, something that I'm extremely passionate about. Um, but so when you go, because I, I want to stay in th therapy momentarily, like you go into, you, you know, a session, what does it entail? I think it varies. Uh, it depends on if, uh, you know, I set it up or, or, you know, he sets it up and we, um, you know, if I've really, if I've gone through an episode or I'm feeling uh, something or there's something that, you know, sparks my anxiety or otherwise, um, there's, that takes on a different life of its own. And then on top of that, if there's, um, you know, a, a you know, an article or something that he may have read or I may have read that, that we want to talk about or expound upon or uh, work on or see how we can help from, from that angle. Or, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, seeing a, a different yet familiar face and just speaking and just talking about different things that come up and, and not just speaking about your, your everyday typical things. I think it's just is just powerful knowing that somebody's there for you and somebody that you can trust and it's not going anywhere. Tell about the Grandma Carol <laughs> conversation. You know, I was in uh, Mexico City. We were supposed to play, uh, you know, Greg Popovich and the Spurs down there and she, uh, you know, had, had got sick, had plaque go up to her brain and uh, was in a coma and died a few days later and I never got to see her before she passed. So for me, I never really went through the grieving process and I have a photo of her, you know, right next to my desk in my office in my apartment and uh, it says, you know, I can't wait to see you again. I have so much to tell you. And I think that was a tough part for me because she was actually supposed to come and see us for Thanksgiving. And she had never been out to Minnesota, so I never got to see her. She never got to come out there and spend that moment with us. And the holidays were huge for her because she just lived vicariously through her family um, and our family. So she was a very special woman who lived next to us for, you know, my entire, you know, formative years of my life. What did she mean to you? I mean, I mean, you could ask my sister too, like, and we used to, I mean, we'd have so much fun with her. My brother and I would poke fun at her, you know, sometimes in, in ways that we probably should have, but she always took it well. And if you, this is the, the best part about her was like, she just lived so much for her family and was such a simple, doesn't give it enough justice. I mean that in a way that she didn't need much to be the happiest woman. Yeah. And you go into her little tiny home and it's just like, 
collages and uh, it almost looks like a mosaic with how many uh, pictures she had uh, up there of, of family members uh, in different years and Little League baseball pictures of me and like my, my first you know, basketball picture when I'm standing there. It's just, she just was so, so all about family and just loving her family. That's all she needed to make her happy. But so what was it about that conversation with the therapist that impacted you? I think just having a better understanding of myself and allowing myself not only to grieve, but to, to be vulnerable in, some, in front of somebody and just open my mind up to somebody who was me being so closed off to, to therapy for so long. So I thought, you know, this, and it doesn't always work the, the first time around or, or, you know, selecting or finding uh, a therapist that works, but thankfully for me, it did, and I was able to get uh, a lot out of it. Explain the importance of keeping your mind occupied in a healthy way yeah. and what you do. I think keeping your mind occupied and on a steady path and continuing to grow can really put uh, depression uh, from that aspect at, at bay. And finding balance, I think those being present and finding balance are probably two of the hardest things uh, in life, and that's something that I, I think we all struggle with, but I think it's a, a major component when it, when it comes uh, to mental health because you can, you can only take care of, of right now. Like, yes, it can set you up for the future. It can heal things from the past. You can learn things from the past, but you know, all we have is right now and the decisions we make. And uh, explain the little micro goals. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I read a... Um, uh, you read a lot. I do. I do read yeah. a lot. I didn't used to when I was younger, so I kind of felt like I was behind. But um, you know, now I try to. Uh, yeah, I try to read a lot. Like I'm the guy reading on the plane that all the guys make fun of. Uh, <laughs> but no, I just micro goals. There's a book called Make Your Bed, um, and it talked about a number of Navy SEALs and uh, you know generals and 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 you know, some of the, the, the things that they do in, in order to, you know, get the best, um, you know, really out of their soldiers. And that book had a profound impact on me because, example, the littlest thing, it's called make your bed. Like in the morning, you do this little micro goal, you make your bed, so at the end of the day, you have this, you know, smooth, very peaceful, calming place that you can come back to. And we mentioned sleep earlier and get your sleep and, you know, you're set up. But it's such a tiny thing, but it's like every decision we make can have an impact on us moving forward. And while we're, you know, thinking about the past or dreading the past or looking back and thinking of the great things of the past and looking forward to the next day, the next month, the next year, uh, and not knowing what's coming, especially in times like this, like, all we have is right now and the decisions we make, but that's, a, again, an everyday struggle, but things you can try to get better at. Uh, so I was talking to your manager, Shannon, and she said your therapist has been a godsend on, on this front, but uh, since you've been public uh, about mental health, just the volume of outreach you've received, yeah. how, how do you even handle that? Well, I think there's, there's a couple forms of the outreach. I think it's been... Uh, you know, just, I mean, obviously there's a lot of press, but just so many people, athlete or, or otherwise, that have, have reached out to me trying to, and knowing that I'm not an expert, I don't have all the answers, but trying to understand where where they can get help, what has worked for me, um, you know, is there any, you know, alternate routes you think I can take, or I'm in this area of the country, or what's it like, and it's it's, yeah, I mean, it's kind of taken off uh, off on a, 
you know, kind of a life of its own. But I'm happy to be in a position uh, and have some of the resources and able to help people. And I'm continuing to, I mean, I'm hoping that that continues. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to my chat with NBA star Kevin Love. To see us hit the court and do some wine tasting with Kevin's longtime girlfriend, model Kate Bach, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger, and you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.